0: So, have you ever wondered, like, why do we study history? I mean, the cliche, of course, is because those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And this is true. However, the way history is presented is not to teach us applicable truths we can use today, but often to just learn about the historical events themselves. You know, what caused a particular war? What led to the creation of our particular technology? What caused my cat to throw up? And if anyone can solve that last one, I would be eternally grateful. And this makes sense in a culture that is built on the values of modernism. Cause and effect is a key value that has shaped how we understand reality. So it naturally follows that the aspect of history we value is to discover the chain of events that led to the certain occurrence happening. This was not the case in the ancient world. Dionysius of Halicarnassus, an ancient Greek historian, once summed up history as philosophy teaching through examples. In other words, history was not to explain how we got to where we are, but the whys of the current state of life we were experiencing. I mean, why do you need to make sure you don't drink too much on Christmas? Well, let me tell you about the time George Washington crossed the Delaware. It wasn't until the Greeks that history started to become more concerned with, well, being historical. Barack Hoppern points out that history and myth intermingled until the Greeks began to systemize genealogy and myth. So what changed? A well, Reading. You see, as literacy spread, people started to detect the apparent contradictions and effective rewritings of historical events. With a new awareness and ability to check these records, history started to become what it is today, an attempt to accurately retell what had happened. Before, however, when someone set out to depict history, they did so with a purpose in mind. This purpose would lead them to arrange the details of the story in a way as to convey to the reader what they wanted the reader to take away. And those who set out to create what we now call scripture were no different. As Vaught demonstrates, in the case of the biblical narratives, this communicative intention is usually a theological one, and the author understands the events described as having actually taken place. Want a great example of this? Look no further than the Gospels. I mean, each one is a different author telling the story of Jesus, but each one is unique. Why? Because... They each had a particular purpose and a distinct demographic. Luke even explicitly lays out his intention and audience at the beginning of the book named after him. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that has been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Luke 1, 1-4 Luke has taken to writing to make sure that his patron, Theophilus, may know the certainty of the things that he has been told. Joseph Fitzmaier shows how the prologue also makes it clear that Luke was not interested solely in recounting the facts of the Christian movement. Luke will undergo taking the story of Jesus and retell it in a way that will help elucidate Theophilus. Now, many have seen this introduction and assumed that Luke's gospel should be viewed as a doctor writing with historical precision. Instead, Luke takes freedom with how he structures his representation of Jesus' life. In other words, Luke, like his fellow Gospel writers, will arrange, include, omit, and manipulate in other ways the story of Jesus' life to fit the intentions behind the writing. The goal is first to share a message. History is just the vehicle. This idea of telling history through a theological lens was nothing new. The writers of the Gospel were influenced by the authors of the Old Testament. The, this use of history to convey a message can be seen all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, we do have a challenge with the historical narratives found in the Old Testament. For instance, we do not have any single historical narrative with a clear indication of its in, in its introduction of the purpose of writing. However, that does not mean that the stories found did not have intention behind them. For example, Nehemiah does not give a direct purpose for his writing, yet one can be inferred from his closing statement when he says in Nehemiah 1331, "'Remember me, my God, with favor.'" The key for us as readers of the Bible is to remember that the purpose for retelling history will dictate how the history is told. And if you were thinking that this was something unique to the Jews, it wasn't. This was common, the common way ancient historians used history. An incredibly simple place to spot this idea can be seen in how numbers were used in ancient Middle Eastern cultures. David Fouts has written a great article on the use of hyperbolic numbers and shows that quite often, large numbers were employed in hyperbolic fashion in the historiographic literatures of Sumar, Akkad, and Assyria, particularly in the royal inscriptional and annalistic genres. Fout's research shows how royal decrees by both Sargon I of Akkad and his son Rimush used large numbers in their royal records of battles. Shalmaneser I, an Assyrian king, talks about the countless numbers he slaughtered and the 180 cities he destroyed. To Kulti Ninurta I, oh, this is going to be a challenge, guys. The next king to follow Shalmaneser I doubled the numbers of his predecessor on a memorial slab about his ascension to the throne. And not to be outdone, an inscription describing another Assyrian king, Adad Nirari II, talks about all the amazing animals he hunted and killed, including 120 lions. And finally, an Ugaritic text describes an army of over three million soldiers. Now, there is no doubt that these kings fought, won battles, or hunted great game, but it can be seen that hyperbolic details were used to show the grandeur of the ones these short historical tales were depicting. In other words, ancient history can be summed up with this classic poem. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Therefore, with this understanding of how history was understood and transmitted during the Old Testament, it can, be seen, it can be seen that history in the Bible cannot be viewed as just a simple series of events. And this brings us back to our quest to be better readers of the Bible. If the standard for historical accuracy was different among the ancients, then why do we judge these ancient tales with the same standards we apply today? innumerable arguments and debates swirl around these fights over historical accuracy but maybe we have missed the point of it all instead as we have seen over these last two weeks history may be somewhat more complicated than what we have assumed and next week we are going to discuss another aspect of history in ancient times that adds to this complexity myth this week though as we conclude what are the takeaways the so what's of this discussion well I would encourage you by saying that if you have been following along with this discussion you have already started to learn how to build the bridges you need to start and be able to read the bible through the glasses of an ancient reader the better we can understand how they understood what they read the better we will be at finding those theological portraits the writers have painted for us and if nothing else we can start to see the amazing artistry reflected in these ancient texts Scripture truly is exquisitely crafted. God's word isn't boring. It's beautiful.